Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler. And today, I am joined by a very special guest. I was uh, very fortunate to, to have the time to speak with David West. I just want to outright thank him for coming on and, and talking with me. It was uh, truly an awesome experience, and I, th- I think every one of you listening is really going to enjoy the conversation we had. We uh, talked, to, obviously, about the Pacers and, and uh, David's basketball career, just as well as some life stuff in general. If you have not already, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and uh, send us some feedback. That really helps us out in in terms of growing this and uh, just getting you the contact you want. Buckle in and and get ready to listen to a great conversation. Hey, David. This is Mark Schindler. How are you doing, man? Hey, how are you, man? I can't complain. I can't complain. How's uh, how's life going for you? How's stuff going with quarantine? Uh, It's going all right, man. I've got... uh got three kids 14 11 and one so we're we're busy you know houses the house has been an adventure the last couple months but you know we're hanging in just like everyone else that's awesome man i'm glad to hear that uh things are finally i, I live in ohio so things are finally starting to uh reach peak summer levels a little bit we kind of just skipped spring we had our last snow gosh it was already two weeks ago the classic i mean you want to right. Xavier, so you know the classic uh may whatever yeah. time in may ohio yeah. but uh yeah, so yeah man yeah. i just want to I, I, first of all thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me i appreciate it um and Absolutely. i want to jump in and talk about the professional collegiate league that uh that you're you're helping start up um i've been okay. going over and uh, researching some of the stuff that you guys are trying to do and it's it's really interesting and i have a mm-hmm. i have a, a lot of thoughts about it i think it seems like just an incredible idea um and i think my first question for you is what uh, what really drew you to, to getting started with it? Like, how did you get involved? You know, I learned, uh, learned about it my last couple of years in the league, in the NBA. A teammate of mine has introduced me to his brother, and then his brother introduced me to the guys uh, at the PCL. And, uh, you know, really just a matter of you know, something that I knew I could lend my name to, then put support behind it, um, work in that capacity to, you know, to, you know, to hopefully bring, you know, another option, another viable option for young athletes in the college field. So that was my initial, you know, reason for getting behind it. it was something that, you know, the way that the collegiate system is set up, um, you know, the athlete is the one that typically has to bear the brunt of the responsibility when things don't go right, uh, when, when things, you know, whether it's illegalities, disciplinary action by the NCAA, that usually falls on the shoulder of the athlete. We just feel like the athletes are the guys that you know, get the short end of the stick. Uh, we feel like college should be a college-based compensation idea, and um, you know, we feel like we're a great place to start, particularly for, for guys who want to continue to pursue their time in college and maximize that opportunity between you know, the ages of 18 and 23. Yeah, I definitely, I, I really respect that. I think uh, one of the yeah. the coolest parts about this is that, I mean, obviously the, the G League is uh, starting up their own way of trying to launch uh, college athletes, well, guys who would be going to college, uh, getting a chance in the G League. Um, but what I really like yeah. that you guys are doing is you're partnering with historically black colleges and universities in order to um, separate school from athletics, which I think is an incredible idea because I, I, uh, I never reached even remotely close to the level you did. Um, but I was, I was working on being a professional boxer when I was, uh, at Michigan state 
And uh, right. the amount of time that goes into, I'm, I'm sure you put in e- even more, but the amount of time that goes into uh, competition and uh, training and everything, I think people, maybe the general person doesn't necessarily understand how much that goes into. And I, I was friends with a lot of guys on, on some of the teams there. And um, it's hard to just right. be a student, you know, like staying on top of your schoolwork and um, being able to actually focus on getting education. Like oftentimes people talk about, well, oh, you get a free ride, you get a free education. Well, oftentimes, especially at, at D1 schools, I mean, you're there to be an athlete first and foremost. Like it's not even a question right. about that. So a lot of these guys don't even get the chance to be a student really. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, it's it's the rigors of, of the system. Um, you know, players are expected to go compete and have good college careers as athletes. And there are very few universities that can accomplish that that balance. Um, and so, and oftentimes guys are in uh, in curriculums and in classes and in things where they're just doing enough, uh, you know, to get by, doing enough, you know, to be eligible for that season. And what we feel is that, you know, if you're able to uh, get out of this traditional mod- model where you're trying to fit, you know square pegs into round holes and be able to use more uh, diversified curriculums like the, those that exist, the trade schools, vocational schools, technical colleges, community colleges, um, different outlets of education um, to meet guys where they are. And ultimately, if a guy decides that he wants to pursue a, a professional path, you know, obviously putting the, the, the basics in front of him, financial, basic financial literacy, media training, uh, you know, social branding and you know, really personal development in a way that gets them aiming toward that professional step. And oftentimes, right, in college, it's, a, it's about that moment. It's about you focusing on the college step and the college opportunity. And sometimes things get conflicted because kids, uh, you've got kids, over 700 kids this year in the transfer portal. Kids won't see themselves one way. Coaches see themselves, see the kids another way. And you've got kids constantly looking and searching and finding, trying to find a, a good opportunity. And so we feel like we still avoid for a lot of different, a lot of different young athletes out there. Um, that's why we continue to build what we're building. Yeah, I, 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 I love it. I think it's great. And uh, one of the other questions that I had for you along those lines, did your time at Xavier kind of factor into to, to your feelings about wanting to join the PCL and kind of make a difference in the way college athletics are being, uh, being played out? Uh, no, it, you know, I had a great time, um, at Xavier. I think what happened, my, my feelings have changed in terms of, you know, compensation for college athletes. It came after, you know, I guess in the 2010s and the early part of this, uh, this decade, uh, uh, you, or the last decade, I should say, um, when the college revenues got astronomical TV deals and, private jets and massive salaries for coaches and athletic departments expanding and you know, the, the, the amenities around the universities are growing, right? $20 million upfits to locker rooms. And I'm saying, wow, nobody thinks it's any, that, kid, that the guy should be, the player should be compensated in any way, right? You've got commissioners of some of these major, uh, conferences making 10 20 million bucks in bonus money and you got guys who don't eat guys who eat ramen noodles and hot dogs um when their lunch card runs out so it was over time 
um, not so much from a personal standpoint, but from a from a perspective of saying, well, something's gotta gotta give here. My perspectives have grown um, toward you know what the college athlete deserves. Um, you know, because again, anytime you're talking about conferences signing multi-billion-dollar TV deals, and everyone else can seemingly you know earn a living, create opportunities for themselves and their families, uh, create career opportunities. Um, really, the only the only choice you're giving the players is to be super extraordinary to make it to the NFL or the NBA for it to all make sense and pay off. And I just don't think that that's fair. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I think uh, it's not yeah. relatively new. I think it's passed around probably around the last couple of years, but there's a graphic showing, you know, every single state in the United States, except I think Alaska and Hawaii, uh, the highest paid employee in the state is a college coach, um, which is, you know, just completely right. with right. what we're talking about. Yeah, so like uh, transitioning into into your playing career, um, just, just kind mm-hmm. of right off the bat, when, when was one of the first moments you knew you were a good player? Like, did, was there just a moment that clicked for you, or was it just kind of a thing, uh, like over time, there were like little moments that build up for you? Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I think I was always pretty confident in myself um, on the basketball court, regardless of, you know, what other folks were saying around me or you know, what opinions were out there. Um, I think, like, you go through phases um, where you have, like, you know, you're building your self-confidence, working out in your in your yard, right? You go through these stages of beating your older brother, beating your dad, beating your uncle, your cousin, beating the guy in the neighborhood or whatever. Start taking, like, these incremental steps. And then, um, you know, then you get to high school. And, you know, in high school, you start to think about, you know, things, I guess, more deeply, something about your future, graduating, going to college, getting scholarships, so you start taking things more serious. Um, but, you know, I, I went through a bunch of different steps. Um, I just always maintained a certain level of, I guess, cynicism about myself, is, mm-hmm. you know, because when people would say you can't do it or you're not going to make it or whatever, um, I'd always say, I'm going to show you, right? I, I'm going to prove you, prove you wrong. I'm going to I'm going to end up being better than what you think. Like that was sort of what was going on in my mind. Um, and then by the time I got to college, I think once like NBA people and once people who didn't know me, um, I remember like reading it, uh, I think this was after my freshman year and Tom Crane made a statement. We played Marquette in the NIT and I believe we won, but he made a statement about me being an NBA, you know, future NBA player. And I can remember reading it like, you know, like it kind of was that phase going from my freshman year to my sophomore year in college where people who didn't necessarily know me, didn't have anything to do with me, were sort of giving me this validation from afar. People, you know, coaches and you know, different people around were saying, and, you know, you start hearing stuff and then the NBA starts coming around and people start putting you on, on you know, on different lists and things like that. That's where I started to really believe it um, and meaning like it was something that I said, okay, yeah, you've got, you, you, you're, you're, you're doing better than, you know, a lot of guys and that's okay. You know? So it was, it's a process for me. It wasn't like necessarily a moment. It was just that gradual sort of every, like almost like a video game. Like you get to stage one, stage two, stage three, you just keep progressing. And all of a sudden, you know, you're getting drafted, you're in the NBA, you got a career. Yeah, definitely. So 
Uh, actually, funnily enough, um, I was two years old when you first started up at Xavier, not to make you feel old, man. But uh, so I, I, I didn't get to witness your, your time in college. Um, what, what kept you right. in school for all four years? Because I think, I mean, obviously that, that's become more of a phenomenon in, in my generation, guys being right. done and done. Um, but I mean, your, your, mm-hmm. your resume speaks for itself. I mean, from, from playing at Xavier. Right. Uh, you know, I just, so when I got, I, you know, I was under-recruited out of high school, um, wasn't, you know, didn't have the grades, so I was in a different mix where, you know, people just didn't see me, didn't offer the opportunity. I got a shot to go to Xavier. Um, you know, Coach Battle saw me play the first time, one time, you know, offered me a scholarship. Coach Prosser came to see me play maybe three or four weeks later, saw me once, offered me a scholarship. Like, I really genuinely felt like these guys saw something that, you know, nobody else did. So, you know, I was, I willingly went there um, and, you know, was wide open and green in terms of what I was expecting. Um, you know, Coach Prosser, Coach Battle, Coach Smith, that staff there was very engaging, but I was always like a developmental guy. So I wasn't a guy that was ever tracking to be a one and done, a two and done. It was, I was, I was ranked uh, like 200 in the nation or something crazy like that. So wow. it was, you know, these guys taking a chance on me. Um, I go to Xavier, and as a freshman, um, you know, I just fell into the right right environment. I worked my way up. You know, was able to start every single game I was on campus. You know, just from being you know consistent, and from year to year, it was a you know just a natural process of growth and development. Didn't score a whole lot as a freshman. Started developing offensively as a sophomore. Started to move away from the basket a little bit more as a junior, and then as a senior, I had a chance to leave after my junior year. It, you know, when I got the, I guess the feedback from the NBA, they were saying, you know, you're, you're going to be a, uh, at that time I was going to be a late first round pick. Uh, there's, you know, just questions about my athleticism, questions that, you know, people always ask, and um, it just. Because I was so comfortable with Xavier, I had already earned my degree. Uh, I was looking at it like I could use this next six to eight months uh, to really just, you know, better myself, become a better person, become a more evolved player, and then ultimately, you know, be able to go into the NBA mature and ready to go. So um, that's why I took the road that I took. I just simply wasn't ready. It took me four years to get ready. Um, you know, naturally not being a big dude took me that time to develop and get stronger. Um, and then again, when I got to the NBA, I was fortunate to be drafted by the oldest team in the league with super, super solid veteran people, you know, who were family men, you know, had children, and had wives, and, uh, you know, were just, you know, hell-bent on doing the right thing every single day, and they passed that on to me. So I got very fortunate taking the route that I took because um, you know, I never saw guys doing it the wrong way. So a lot of rookies get caught up, especially if you go into an organization that's questionable. You get caught up and you get around a team that doesn't have the better leadership, no really good examples, and you pick up those bad habits, those behaviors, and then your career is not what it should be. You know, I was fortunate enough to go into an environment where you know, the men were solid, like I said, and they showed me the right steps to take. They showed me the right demeanor to carry myself with the seriousness that I should approach every single day with. And um, it really, really worked out for me, you know. So that's why I was able to 
think have with the career that I had. Again, it was because of the steps that I took were were best for me. It didn't really take into account what other people were doing. Yeah, yeah, and so that's that's really interesting. Because I, I, I was, I mean, I was going through Basketball Reference today, reading through you know all the old rosters and everything. And um, what was it like? Uh, so obviously, right. you learn from those veteran presences when when you're coming up with New Orleans. Um, right. What's it like transitioning from from being uh, a younger player on the team to being a more veteran presence. So like, you know, on, on the end of your tenure with the Hornets, when, you know, Darren Collison and Marcus Thornton, Trevor Rees are the young guys that are coming up under you. And then when you move to Indiana as well, like what's that like uh, kind of realizing you're, you're the, you're the old head in the room a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I got a chance to, you know, be with being in the world for eight years. And so anytime you're with an organization that long, you just, because you're there, people expect, you to know more, right? Know more about the organization, you know, answer questions about the organization. Um, so you naturally move into that role as like the longer you're with an organization, you have the new guys to rot as the roster turns over, whether it's players or coaches, they're gonna, you know, sort of look to you for guidance because then they're they don't know, you know, sort of how the organization is wired. So that was sort of the, the progression in New Orleans. Like we had a few coaching changes, um, and I was sort of just the guy that was through it through there, through it all, like before Chris, uh, before we got CP, and he, you know, changed the direction of the franchise. And so I was able to sort of bridge that gap. And then part of the team that was displaced from New Orleans during Katrina, and, you know, be able to bridge that gap. Since when we went back to New Orleans, we had, you know, a new team and guys who hadn't been a part of pre-Katrina New Orleans. Um, and you know, this was their first time in the city. So it was, uh, it was quite an experience, but it's a natural progression. If you have a career, you know, if you, if you're in the NBA for a certain amount of time, like you get your, your first four or five years in, you you start to assume some leadership role, at least you should, you know, because again, you, you, you've been able to consistently meet the benchmark uh, in terms of being an NBA player, being a guy that's that's um, you know, doing things the right way in order to keep their career rolling. So when I got to Indy, it was just a natural, uh, more natural feel because the guys were so much, uh, so there was such a, a, a much larger age gap um, when I got to Indy with, with some of the guys, like Paul, right? These guys are 20, I think Paul was maybe 20, 21 years old. So guys are super young, super talented. It was just a natural, um, natural thing for me, like, you know, I was married, already had a daughter, uh, so it was a little bit further along in my journey. And I mean, those are the, you know, naturally that's what happens in in professional life. Like the guys who are more mature, the guys who um, a little bit more evolved simply because they're more experienced, um, take on the, the, those roles in the locker room. That's why you know it's imperative that teams have better leadership and have voices um, in the locker room that you know young players can sort of used as a shield and a barometer for where they should be. Yeah, definitely. And uh, especially looking at your time in Indiana, I mean, you, you were the veteran guy in the locker room, you and Danny yeah. prior to him getting traded. And uh, the, so what, like, just when you look back at your time in Indiana, what's kind of like the one thing that, that sticks out to you about, about your time here? Just, I mean, we, you know, we got really good, really fast. Um, you know, we went from the year before I got there, I think, I mean, there was the eight seeds in the eight seed in the playoffs, and they won a game against the Bulls. But I remember having one of my first conversations with Frank. Um, he was like, "Yeah, but you know, we had a losing record that year." 
And I was like, yeah, well, we won't have a losing record this year. <laughs> and I remember saying that, like, you know, that was, we were coming into that short lockout season. I think it was 66 games we ended up playing. But I knew we had the, you know, the makeup and we had the pieces to, to be a winning team in the East. Um, you know, I think, you know, we just – guys hit their stride at the right time. Um, you know, we, we had a really, really good run. Um, and I enjoyed it. You know, it was a part of – you know, part of – Part of the journey as an athlete is you find places in your career that you can really, you know, pieces of your career, places in your career that you can really be proud of. And, um, you know, being able to go in, you know, go into Indiana and, you know, change the fortune of, of that group, you know, instill confidence in that group and, and uh, you know, watch us grow together and, and, and take on some, have some really memorable playoff, uh, deep playoff runs, um, you know, really really stand out in my mind. They're able to, those are the experiences and those are the things that you carry with you, again, that I think give you points of pride throughout your journey. Like, yeah, you know, able to go in, have a positive impact on the locker room, be productive on the court, and then we, we showed some real growth and produced real results with you. Know, winning our division, you know, challenging, you know, one of the all-time great teams, uh, you know, you know, to competing and having an identity, um, you know, creating certain, you know, certain pathways for guys, you know, being a part of, you know, players' journeys and you know, being a part of players' stories. It's, you know, all of those things are important, um, you know, to you as you look back, with some guys and they look back on their career. And, you know, I was able to pull a few moments like that from, from my time in Indy. Yeah, definitely. And uh, speaking just on, on the, on the, playoff moments the shot you hit against the hawks uh when 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 yeah. indy almost went down in the series i mean that was uh, that's one that's always like straight up in my mind we were going through it you know with um in that hawk series i mean we knew that that stretch um was going to be tough right because we were playing teams we were still even the year before um you know we really i think my first year there we, we beat orlando in the first round um you know we were we were still you know, for all intents and purposes, man, we were playing big. We were playing bigger than a lot of teams were. And, uh, you know, Frank was committed to that. And, you know, we weren't necessarily willing to go small. Uh, and we were working to try to, you know, be the, <laughs> be the antidote to where everybody was shifting toward small ball. We weren't. And um, it worked for us. We had a little window where, you know, we, we just had enough. We had, you know, besides with Danny and Paul's versatility to be able to deal with teams, whether they were big or small. Um, you know, and, you know, that's, that's a, that was a part of that, that journey as well. It was, you know, sort of us watching a coach like Frank B. Young, but, you know, sort of pick an, pick an identity for his team and hold steadfast to that identity to, you know, to the end. You know, he was, he wanted to be big. He wanted to be strong. He wanted to be physical. Uh, he wanted to have a young star, and he had that in Paul, and have a guy with close games like Paul, and um, but also depend on you know the veteran pieces, um, you know, to support the young cast and the versatility that we had on that roster. Yeah, definitely, and I think uh, especially speaking on the size, like you're talking about, I mean, it, it helps because I mean Roy was seven two, but I think sometimes people forget. I mean, he was yeah. the best defensive player in basketball for like that year and a half stretch. Uh, from like the end of 2012 to, to 2014, right. he was just a force. I mean, uh, I, I went back and I did a podcast. I don't know if you remember right. Scott Agnes. He works uh, for the Athletic now. 
uh, as a beat writer for, for indie. Yeah, I remember seeing well, yeah, yeah. I was talking with him about, we, we did a podcast talking about the, the 13, 14 series, uh, between, you know, us and the heat and, uh, just going back and, and, yeah. and watching how different the game was back then, even only six years ago, but like just comparing it to now, it's just crazy. Right. To look at. <laughs> but, um, Right. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely changed. Definitely yeah. Changed. It's, uh, I mean, when you, when you think about your game, uh, how do you think it would translate today? Well, you know, I think probably I would, I think I would be able to play just fine. I mean, because I'm going to shoot, you know, pick and pop jumpers. I think, you know, probably what I was um, early on in my career in New Orleans, uh, you know, where I lived, I mean, I just lived out on the perimeter with Chris and we played the pick and pop game. Um, you know, I think it would, it would be fine. I think what, what we've gotten away from, uh, people don't really realize is that again, there's only a few guys in the NBA that get that green light to shoot the three, the way that Steph and Clay and Harden and, you know, KD get to shoot it. But other than that, you've got, um, you got the traditional game still intact. If you if you look at the way Paul Paul George plays, if you watch the way that um, uh, Kawhi plays, if you watch the way that uh, I mean, even some of the young bigs like Jokic, uh, Embiid, you know, they they've evolved in terms of being able to shoot the ball from the outside. But those guys still do a lot of their damage at the basket, you know, inside of you know 15, 17, 15 to seventeen feet. Um, again, because I think they're playing the game, and it's not so much about you know adjusting to the to the inevitable shift, right? You know, the Warriors didn't you know didn't have a good year this year, injuries and things like that, and the league didn't. You know, I don't think you saw teams adopt what they were doing. Um, you know, like the Pacers, they play big. Uh, the Lakers play big. Um, you look at Utah. Utah plays big. Uh, New Orleans plays big. Um, a lot of the teams around the league are playing with, you know, the traditional size. But, you know, obviously when the Warriors are up top, the Warriors are in charge and they're the team to beat, you've got to adjust your game. Um, so, again, I don't know if the game has is, is just changed as much as we think it has. Um, I think players have continued to evolve, but mm. I think the game is, is in a good space. Um, you know, I don't think it's – like I said, I think – it's more or less what we see, highlights and things like that, and focusing on you know the teams that shoot the most threes, like the like uh, the Warriors or like the Rockets, and sort of use a brush to brush everybody with the same with the same stroke. And I don't think that that's that that's the case, you know, because you watch Toronto play and last year and, and challenge the Warriors and you know Kawhi and Siakam and those guys who do are, you know, post ups and mid range jumpers and you know, the Toronto relied on offensive rebound and, you know, traditional points that points of the game that, you know, that have always been around. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, I really liked what you said about with, with Golden State having all the injuries this year and how uh, teams weren't really adapting to what Golden State was doing because for, you know, the last, you know, four or five years, that's what everybody was doing. They had to adapt yeah. in order to play them. And uh, without them in the league this year, or I mean, they, they were, <laughs> but they right. weren't, you know, but right. um, it's just, yeah, totally different game. Right, um, right. But so just yeah. to, to go backwards a little bit, when, when you first get to Indiana, um, I mean, obviously, Paul, Lance, uh, even George still, I mean, George Hill's still young at that point. Um, so, like, right. when you're coming in, do you already know? Or, I mean, obviously, you wouldn't know, but, like, um, 
when you just get into that locker room and you, 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 you get into practice and you're seeing those guys play, like, can you, when did you like first realize that this was going to be like a really special group? Uh, well, I, I think it probably um, came when we were, you know, throughout that year, that, um, that playoff year, um, that first year there, the lockout season we were playing, I think we had, you know, actually back to back to back games that year a couple times. Um, I think it was, it was you know, there's like an un, unspoken rule in the league. Like, the championship caliber teams don't lose, don't lose, you know, two games in a row, right? And playoff teams typically don't have skids more than three or four games. Like, you know, if you're, playoff team is not going to traditionally have a five, six, seven, eight-game losing streak. You know, playoff teams have a bad, you know, tough stretch, injuries or whatever. But usually playoff caliber teams can recover after three or four, three, three or four losses. And we were, we started to do that. Um, you know, we started to win. We won a couple games that were tough. You know, we, you know, we start to put together three, four, five, six wins in a row, then maybe lose one and then put together another four or five wins. And, um, you know, that's when I started to, you know, feel like, man, we're a little bit ahead of the curve, you know, because, you know, we were just able to, you know, Danny was healthy, he was playing, and we didn't have, there wasn't a whole lot of pressure on Paul to carry a whole lot of the load. He was just playing. You know, he was just being himself. And um, same thing for George. Um, you know, and then Roy was being, you know, was, was in the midst of a, of a huge personal, you know, growth spurt where he just, it was his confidence. Frank had his confidence higher than it had ever been in his career. Um, so it was just the right time for, for everybody. And, uh, you know, it allowed me, you know, the space to get healthy. I was coming off of a knee surgery, ACL. It was the first time I'd been seriously hurt like that in my career. And, um, you know, it gave me the comfort. Uh, the team was intact enough. team was strong enough to give me, a, uh, give me that confidence I needed to get back to what I knew I could be and to get healthy. So it was, it was like I said, that year we, we didn't have those bad stretches. We didn't have. You know, we were able to recover and bounce back, win tough, tough road games. I knew we were we were going to be on the up uptick. So, uh, kind of transitioning a little bit. Um, one thing mm-hmm. that uh, I, I've learned, I'm like like I said, I'm only 22, but I've already learned that uh, kind of what's difficult now can can really change with perspective and experience as you grow. And um, I'm kind of wondering, yeah. like, what was what was maybe the hardest moment that you had to deal with in your career? Uh, all, I guess from top to bottom or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, just like in, in, in the moment. Be, yeah. You know, it's, it's injuries. Um, you know, when I tore my knee in, uh, in, uh, in Utah uh, one night, we, you know, we were, that Hornets team were actually, you know, we were, uh, we were making a push. Uh, and we might have been either like third or fourth in the West. And, um, you know, I was feeling like, man, I'm getting back to myself. We had a, the year before we had fired the coach, and um, I was really feeling good, like just feeling. And then I tore, I blew my knee out, and um, I remember that night they told me that the doctor examined me in Utah. And told me that I didn't tear my ACL, so I had like this weird optimism that I could, you know, I'd probably be out like a week or two weeks, and then be be ready to get back for the playoffs. Um, and then when I got to Phoenix, we had to fly to Phoenix that night, and then I went and did an MRI the next morning and found out that I, you know, told my ACL I was going to be out six to eight months. I just remember, 
you know, feeling um, feeling like the floor had bottomed out from under me. Like I, that was my free that was free agent year, um, and being a guy that had did you know played four years, I had signed a four year extension from the Orleans, and that was the end of I think four or five year extension or something. But that was the end of that was the last year of that, and I was looking forward to you know hitting free agency and going through all that stuff. So I knew like it was just that moment, like damn, none of that. You know, this was my one opportunity to maybe potentially have a big free agent moment. Um, tear my knee up the last second to last week in March, like three weeks before the playoffs. Um, and I was in a really, really low spot through that, you know, dealing with the knee injury, um, you know, dealing with rehab, dealing with then the lockout comes and still have to go through free agency in a way, um, you know, that's because you're, you're hurt. So teams want to find out sooner rather than later where you are in your, in your recovery. Um, so that whole event was, um, was rough, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically. Uh, but then, you know, when I, when I made the decision to come to Indy, man, I, I'll be honest, man, it was, it was partly the team and Larry and uh, Donnie, uh, but really it was the, the medical staff. Carl, Josh, Wendell, um, you know, those guys, um, those guys made me feel confident. They gave me the confidence, you know, like, you're going to be fine. Like, I was so worried about not being able to play. I hadn't, I literally hadn't played any basketball. The first time I played basketball and did anything with a ball was the first one when I got back to, to the, to the Pacers. So wow. I signed with the Pacers, and then Frank, Frank is like, we got practice the next day. That was the first time I had played. I had run. Because before that, I was just straight rehab. Like, I was doing two sessions a day. I was, like, crunching it because I wanted to be healthy by the time the season started. And um, But I didn't take into account that we wouldn't have a traditional training camp. So I signed with the Pacers, and I hadn't even been doing any shooting Hadn't hadn't played, and I remember like literally fighting. Like, okay, here we go, and we roll out. We do like a defensive drill. I'm like, yo, this is the first time you literally run or or play basketball in any capacity since you tore your knee. So it was the, the medical guys at the with the Pacers that really gave me that confidence. And uh, like I said, it was I learned so much about my body from them. Um, that makes you feel good. It gives you the confidence to go out. and and get back on your feet, get on, you know, play on a on a knee injury and uh, recover from like a very, very dark, you know, difficult moment in my career as a, as a player. That's probably been the it's probably the lowest point I was just when I tore my knee up the timing and then that recovery back to to myself. I think when we lost the playoffs, we lost in the playoffs after my first season with the Pacers. Like I felt good. Even though we lost and it was the second round loss to the Heat um, I felt good because I was like, man, you made it through. Um, and that was the only season um, in my career that I played every single game. So that year, coming back from the ACL, I played all 66 games in every single playoff game. So, you know, it was it was I was determined to do that. Um, and like I said, the guys with, with Indy were the reason why I was able to able to do that. Wow, that's really interesting. I, uh, I'd never thought about the idea of a medical staff factory. I know that the Pacers medical staff is incredible, but that's, uh, that's, that's really cool. I didn't, I didn't know oh, about yeah. that. Um, so oh, an, yeah. another thing, too, that I'd, I'd love to just kind of pick your brain about, um, I never really 
understood uh, why Frank got released. And um, I, I don't know. I think that's something that has always been uh, with at least a good deal of Pacers fans has always been something that, that we've wondered about. And things obviously have worked out really well for him now, uh, doing an incredible job in, in, in yeah. L.A. Um, yeah. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and, and what that was like having to transition to a new coaching staff. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Frank was um, – you know, Frank's a different – like, he's a different kind of coach. Uh, you know, he, he, he's, it's, it's a difficult situation for, I think, young players to be with Frank if they don't understand that, um, you know, he's, he's going to demand certain things of you and it's, it requires your confidence. So I remember the first time he went off – I'll never forget this. The first time he lost his cool with us, uh, my first year at Indy and Paul and Danny and we go up against the Heat. It's the first time they play. We play the Heat in Indy, and uh, and you know we're just not responding. They're you know, the Heat up to the moment and they're they're running us by like fifteen or twenty. And Frank comes in the locker room with a hat and he just lets off. You know, breaks the, the, the chalkboard. He breaks the, oh, sure. the the board that we were writing on. He's slamming stuff and he's cursing. And I'm like listening to, I'm listening to him, but I'm like kind of in my own head trying to figure out like, okay, I know he's mad, but what, what do we have to do technically to get back in this game? That's just the way my mind works. So mm-hmm. um, when I listen, when I like, all of a sudden I just like listened to what he was actually saying. And it was the most positive curse out I've ever heard in my life. Like I was like, wait a minute, he's not really cursing guys out. He's like mad that they're not as confident in themselves as he is. You know what I mean? Like that's a yeah. different perspective for a coach to have. And, um, uh, you know, I think that, you know, it may, it, for some people it looks like well, he's not tough, he's not hard, but, you know, it's the way that he's wired. And it's, again, I saw him get the best out of guys using that methodology. And, you know, it's not, again, it's, it's, it's something unique. It's something that you got to like sort of warm up to or figure it out. And if it's not something that you're comfortable with, um, you know, I think sometimes people you know, have a hard time seeing it, seeing it work. And, you know, again, I thought my time with Frank, I, you know, he was great. You know, I think he's a great young coach. I think he's motivated the right way. Um, you know, and he, and he understands his limitations. So he understands he has, you know, gaps and holes in his, in his knowledge to agree. And he's willing to, to, he's always willing to listen and, and, um, you know, get people's insight as to where, as to where uh, where they are, you know, so that he can make sure he puts people in the best possible position. So, yeah, I think he's, you know, again, his time in Indy was time, it was just time to move on. Um, you know, how it is in NBA, you get like the four to six year window, you know, to make it happen. Um, you know, things are on up and up. You get you get to ride off into the sunset if, if there's any, you know, questionable, um, you know, friction there. And then oftentimes folks just go their different ways. And I think that's what, that's what happened with them. Yeah, that, that that totally makes sense. Uh, that that story yeah. about the locker room—that's awesome, man. I had no—it's it's so cool hearing hearing some of this stuff. Um, so yeah. I think I got—I just got one last question for you. So uh, speaking more like you know later in your career as you're uh, preparing to transition out, um, what is that like? You know, uh, I think that I mean you had a, a really long career, really long productive career, and so when you get to when you're in Golden State and you know you're uh, kind of coming to uh, it sounds yeah. dark, but you know, the end of the road, the end of your playing days, how do you, how do you prepare yeah. for that? Cause I think, I mean, you're a, an incredible example of a player who, who came out really prepared. 
Um, and I think that there have been a lot mm. of guys who have really struggled with, uh, with being done with that. Cause I mean, that's one thing I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't even imagine having to know, you know, my, my career's done by the time I'm 33 or 34. And, um, so, so mm. how did you, how'd you kind of transition into that and be ready for that? Well, you got to start, you know, you got to start early. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with perspective. So, um, you know, understanding that early on that you this that you're not going to be able to play forever, and that's okay. Um, understanding that your skills are going to diminish, um, and that's okay. Um, you know, but and then also being able to build yourself up in the meantime, like I mean, during your career, and make yourself valuable to people in a lot of different ways. And I think that's probably the easiest thing or best piece of advice I could give to young players is. You know, invest in other parts of yourself. I'm not saying distract yourself away from basketball or from what you do professionally, but what I'm saying is take the time to invest in other parts of yourself for you. You know, not so that you're, you know, it's beneficial to somebody else or helpful to someone else. You've got to, you know, evolve and develop parts of yourself so that when the ball does start bouncing, you have the confidence in what you can do. And then you can look at the world and say, okay, I'm confident in my ability to do A, B, C, D, or E. Let me go find an opportunity there. And the best way to do it is to start, you know, looking for those opportunities while you're in the league. Start trying to figure out what it is that you can do and what you can contribute, you know, to the society in terms in a, uh, in a greater art, you know, outside of being able to just physically play basketball. And whether it's coaching at the various levels, whether it's, you know, engagement in the game at the various levels, um, all the ancillary positions and opportunities that exist around the game, um, you know, there are options out here. You know, you just have to make the decision, the conscious choice to understand where you are uh, and understand what's available to you. Uh, but the most important piece is developing other parts of yourself and making, you know, yourself more valuable. Um, in a way that people, again, it's not about people liking you or you being Mr. Popular. It's literally you having something to contribute, you know, wants you to no longer contribute physically um, in the game of basketball. So that gives you, you know, that, that's something that I've always, I've never taken for granted, you know, because I never was disillusioned about who I was. And um, I think being honest with yourself is the first order of business, uh, you know, you're a young player. You got to recognize you're not LeBron James. You're not Dwayne Wade. You're not freaking you know Michael Jordan or Allen Iverson. But it's okay. You know that's okay. You know you got to be okay with who you are. Be okay with where your ceiling is, and try to get the most out of it. So I feel like I was able to do that throughout my career. So when it was time to retire, um, you know, it wasn't hard. It was, you know, do you want to continue to take these risks? Are you satisfied with where you are? I could answer those questions affirmatively, and um, I was able to walk away. Uh, not totally walk away from the game because I'm still, I still love basketball. You know, still love the game. Still try to be in the gym as often as I can, whether I'm, you know, at home or um, you know, working with my AAU club or you know, going to visit friends of mine who are coaching, going to. Uh, going back to NBA practices or whatever, you know, the game is always going to be a part of my life, uh, you know, and I think we all have to accept that. You know, I think sometimes we get to this position where if I can't play basketball, then I'm just going to walk away from the game completely. I'm not, I'm not one of them guys. I can't do it. it, it it's meant too much to me. It's too big. You know, it's too much of a part of my, of, of my makeup to just, you know, not be in the 
be around the game. It's um, it's just been really, really hard these last few months. Cause I, I mean, from the from the time you're four or five years old, you spend days a week in the gym, and this is the first time in my life where I haven't been in the gym. Never, I've never had this, this extended amount of time ever. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. I hadn't even thought about that. Like, uh, just for me, like, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm so used to watching like, you know, four or five games a day when the season's going and, um, yeah, right. it's just been a total change. I can't even imagine. Um, well, David, thank you so, so much for taking time to talk with me. I, I had an awesome time. I could do this all, all day, every day, but I, I'll, I'll get you out of right. here. But <laughs> uh, best of luck to you and your family, man. You have a good rest of your day and have a great weekend, man. All right. You too, man.